Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. If we can operationalize this, the micro decision making on the ground becomes much more powerful and it doesn't force us into a command and control environment. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, we have a conversation with Andrew Fong, Vice President of Infrastructure at Dropbox, about how to operationalize values. Andrew oversees all infrastructure engineering and operations efforts, which are responsible for scaling Dropbox's infrastructure stack, supporting hundreds of millions of users worldwide. Prior to Dropbox, he was at YouTube, Google, and AOL in various infrastructure capacities. Andrew shares how to identify, operationalize, and reinforce values in your organization, plus his strategies to scale organizations through values-based decision-making and in cultivating values-based environments. You'll also hear some pretty incredible stories about the massive role values played in changing the outcomes of several large-scale infrastructure projects at Dropbox. Enjoy our conversation with Andrew Fong. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here today, Patrick and Jerry. The prevailing wisdom seems to be that values-based, mission-driven leadership is paramount to success. And I think we have some great examples of this in the Bay Area, Dropbox being one of them, but actually applying this as a leader and operationalizing values at scale is extremely challenging. What does it mean to operationalize values and why does it matter? And and do you have a, a story to introduce us to this topic? Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good place to start. So at Dropbox, I head up the infrastructure organization. So it's an org of roughly about 200 people, 220 people. And one of the things that we actually believe pretty strongly in is making sure we have a a very strong, concrete set of values and mission within infrastructure. And we went through the normal process of, of coming up with those, and we can talk more about that later potentially. But we have these three values about being reliable, efficient, inclusive. And these are meant to be behaviors as well as how we drive system design, as well as how we just operate ourselves on a day-to-day basis. And late last year, we were going through a design review of a major data center migration. And the team had come to the review and said, you know, I want to have a bunch of engineers, like most of engineering have to do a bunch of these migrations. And we started just started from the values. And we said, is, is this going to be efficient? Um, and everyone was like, no, not, not really. We should probably figure out a different way. We said, do you think it's going to be reliable and come in on time if we have to involve a couple hundred people? And everyone was like, probably not. And then we started talking, you know, a little bit like, did, did we talk to anybody else before we did this? And the team was like, oh, yeah, we, we kind of skipped that step, actually. So we built this back in the napkin plan. We have this plan. We're ready to go. But we haven't like actually lived up to our values. And at that point, it was pretty easy to say, okay, let's just pause. Let's spend a week, maybe two weeks, do a little research, see if there's a way to do this that sort of lives up to our values, lives up to our purpose, which is maximize product velocity sustainably. So this is probably not going to maximize product velocity and probably not going to be super sustainable. So it checks like sort of all of our boxes to say like, okay, yeah, like have a pretty frank conversation without anybody feeling like defensive about it because it gave us a framework to sort of apply our day-to-day sort of just a design review through through that framework. So that, that's like probably the simplest example that comes to my recent memory of sort of like where we applied them. We do them at a bunch of other places as well. OKRs, our monthly business reviews, all of that is driven also from the values and from purpose. When I think about sort of our OKR planning process, 
as thematically, we want to have things that ladder up to those values. So the actual OKR may not be, be efficient, but when we think about how do we think about cost savings or how do we think about developer velocity, all of those things go towards either maximizing product development sustainably, and then they also have to be reliable and efficient. And so we look for those attributes as we look at the OKRs. And so if you have OKRs that don't match those attributes or if we feel ladder up to the purpose, then it's pretty easy okay, why are we doing this? Are we the right team to do this? Is our charter still the right charter? You know, it can lead to a second set of discussions. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. It just means that given the framing that we have, it holds us like honest and accountable to ourselves to make sure we're actually going after the things that we think are the most valuable. Yeah, as an OKR, I guess that happens on multiple levels, the team level, org level, company level. Everyone's sort of using the same set of values to make a decision or asking the hard questions. I should give a little bit of a caveat. These are the infrastructure values, the company sets of values. Ours are not orthogonal to the company values, but they're more specific to how we operate in our organization. So, you know, be worthy of trust, uh, make work human, all of those things are much more at the company level, but they're not in um, opposition to the sets of things that we care about inside of infrastructure. Got it. But essentially, it's a set of criteria or uh, things people can use to make collective decision-making in whether it's scalable. That, that was the entirely the intent. And I, we've done this in smaller size orgs before. And we had said like, okay, if we can make this work at scale, pretty much all the research also shows that if you make it work at scale, it, it can work at scale. It was really about, if we can operationalize this, the micro decision-making on the ground becomes much more powerful and it doesn't force us into a command and control environment where everything gets you know, sent to the most senior person, the most senior person okays it, you know, go down the chain because there's an implied, almost explicit actually, you know, if you're using this framework, right, and you have the best intent, it's very hard for, you can't get in quote unquote trouble, right? Yep. We have to have like a question about, okay, like what happened here? Where was the failure? It's a failure of the mission, not a failure of the person making a decision. I think it's very powerful, empowering to be able to leverage that set of value in anyone in their company, regardless of their position, right? Yep. Their title, level, everyone sort of operating the same set of values. That means one person is as knowledgeable as any other person to make a, a decision. So this gives a lot of power to anyone in the, in the company. Yep. That was the thesis. That when we go through it, we actually have some sort of outcomes that we're looking for. And one of the outcomes yeah. hypothesis we had is that this should increase what we call company pulse survey score. Every company runs from right the, the survey about like how, how engaged are you? How are you feeling about the company? One of the ones we have is around decision making. And we had a hypothesis that by rolling this out inside of infrastructure, at least inside of infrastructure, we would see those scores, set of scores increase. And we actually have. We've had sort of this operationalized probably for a little over a year plus now. And quarter over quarter, we definitely see a rise across all metrics that relate to empowerment and you know, decision-making is a derivative of that. How do you find or identify those values for your organization in the first place? And do you make changes over time? The short of it is, is it's not that hard, but once you've done it once, it's sort of, we just did sticky notes on a board. The prompt question that we ask, uh, we start from belief and then we go to purpose and then we go to values, where the belief is, what would we believe to be true about infrastructure regardless of where we worked, regardless of what industry we were in? And so for us, the belief is infrastructure is a force multiplier. Now, if I worked in construction and I built bridges... I'd still believe that, right? Because I'd be able to get people from Marin into San Francisco at a much higher rate than is if they had to, you know, you know, take a fair rate. Like it's a force multiplier. Then we wrote a bunch of words about like what we thought about infrastructure. And we spent about an hour just like going through those and coming up with like very short and succinct. One failure mode that I typically see when I see missions and I see values is that they're wordy, they're long, and you can't remember them. Ours is a belief is infrastructure is a force multiplier. We did the same thing with purpose, which is maximize product velocity sustainably. And then our values are reliable, efficient, and inclusive. And so it's, they're meant to be short and sweet and memorable in a way where you don't have to go and like look it up on the wiki at the company and say like, okay, why do, why, why do we exist? Like, what's the reason here? And so we did this with my reports, which include five or six engineering directors, each with like org sizes, probably 40 to 50, and then some principal engineers. And we spent, that cohort did it. We sent it out for like review in a little bit more general form, but you wow. know, it wasn't it wasn't contentious, actually. It converged within maybe three hours. Like, it, 
the first two values of reliable and uh, efficient, there was no controversy. The last one around inclusive, we started with customer focus. You know, everyone starts like that. And we, we actually sort of said the prompt question we sort of asked ourselves is like, why did we join? Like, why are we here? And everyone really felt that they, through the interview process and through talking to the managers that they had worked with, you know, as they came in, that it was really about that they felt that they had a voice and they could actually get the things done they wanted to do, both personally, professionally, and with their teams. And so that sort of expanded to inclusive, where we felt like, okay, we have such a wide range of disciplines. One thing that's makes us sort of unique in a, as an engineering org is we have everything from supply chain, network engineering, data center, software engineering, some front end, like that runs the gambit in infrastructure. So you really have to have something cohesive to pull these people together. Otherwise, you know, you know, it's not just a single product you're building. You're shipping something from sheet metal all the way up to, you know, a data center and then the software that runs on it. So we had to have a set of things that pulled everyone together. And so that really led to inclusive because we just said like, we can't do this you know, you have to include the right set of people when we go through this process. So that's sort of the genesis of what we've done, at least in the infrastructure side. Done it with a couple other orgs in slightly similar fashion, though. To get clarity on the prompt question, so the mm -hmm. belief was, what would we believe about infrastructure regardless of the company? Mm -hmm. And then for purpose, what was the generative question there? Why do we exist here? Why do we exist? Why, why do we exist at Dropbox? At Dropbox? Why do we exist at Dropbox? Yes. Okay. And then for the values, it was, why did we join? Why are we here? The general prompt was like, what do we value? And it was like reliability and efficiency were just like so crystal clear. If you're if you're a force multiplier, these are the two biggest levers you have for the company. These are the metrics you're sort of gold on. Um, that everything else is like that was just not controversial. Then yeah. it became what other behaviors do we want to incentivize? What are the things that we want to see? And to be clear, like the original spin on reliable and efficient, people thought about these as metrics. And then we started to dig into it and we said, like, okay, if we think about trust. You know, trust has a big component about being reliable. Well, what makes us really not trust people? An infrastructure team was like, well, we don't trust people when they don't deliver. So it was like, okay, then reliability has to be a value because that's actually something that we care about for ourselves. So every time we send an email, we expect a response. So that's about being reliable, right? So efficient. We don't want to have meetings that run six hours that like go in circles. So you want to make an efficient meeting. You want to make sure it was on time. So you want to be reliable and you show up. All of those were attributes that the org felt like they had as behavior elements that we wanted to keep further. And so we actually don't spend as much time talking about these as metrics or things like that from like an optimization function, but it's more about how we behave because we believe if we behave that way, systems will be reliable, systems will be efficient because that's just the, that's the environment you're put into. And so this is, you know, we talked a little bit about operationalizing it, like that environment of how you behave creates an envelope for how people will write code. When you have identified those uh, set of values and sent it out for the entire team, do they have opportunity to generate bad ideas and come back? Sort of a combination of top-down plus bottom-up. Infrastructure, we did not do it as much top-down, bottom-up. In smaller orgs, we have. We sent out to like to the second layer of the org, if I remember correctly, but we didn't go all the way down. I've definitely seen this work where you can go all the way down. We wanted to balance sort of the time to deliver versus how far did we think the gap was. And we've had similar frameworks in the past within infrastructure. And so trustworthy, efficient, useful was like one incantation of this. So we knew that there was like a pretty good nucleus seed on like what was there. And I think the company had rallied so much about increasing shipping velocity and things like that, that the purpose really resonated. Like it wasn't controversial from that perspective. Yeah. That makes sense. And also it's a large org. Mm -hmm. And the process that identifying and deciding the, the value is reflective of the value itself, like being efficient. Yeah, yeah. Are there times that you feel there's a need to revisit? So one of the things, and COVID's thrown a little bit of wrench in this because it's a little bit harder right now, but we actually, every time we onboard a new leader, we definitely revisit because we want to make sure they actually understand them. It's something that I think about on a daily basis. Like, are these still serving us? Or have we outgrown them? Is there anything we should tweak? The plan was actually right around this time, this is about 18 months, was going to be to sort of do another offsite onsite to go through it. We need to figure out how to operationalize that in the COVID world in a way that's efficient because it's definitely a little bit harder just to get on Zoom and throw a bunch of sticky notes on a board. It's, it's not the same. I did it with a group the other day though with like, with an online work tool and it works reasonably well. But the goal is to definitely revisit by the end of the year just to make sure that the values still serve us. Now you have a set of values, everyone sort of endorsed that. How do you encourage people to internalize that and turn that into a habit? 
There's a bunch of different tools. My mindset is like, it needs to be everywhere all the time with everything we do. So there doesn't go a day in my week where I don't think about them or I don't apply that lens. The easy one is OKRs. We mentioned that we use that through the OKR process. We use it through headcount planning because headcount planning should tie directly to OKRs. So OKR process goes and headcount planning process goes and those should be the same. Monthly business reviews, any key decisions, we have a column that says like, how did, how do we arrive at this conclusion? where that conclusion is framed around our values or our mission. Metrics reviews, like then there's the things that are not overt in your face, like directly saying we're reliable, we're efficient. Things like making sure we have metrics review every month. That ties directly to being reliable because our number, like one of our metrics we go on is reliability. So that's like part of that. My smaller support team, just like my EA and my chief of staff, like the two of them know that we never will cancel a monthly business review. It will just shift because we just firmly believe that there's a set of things that if I'm only asking of 10 things of you a month or eight things of you a month, that we have to be reliable with them and we can't ever let them move. So one-on-ones are the same. I try to like to move one-on-ones. So there's like a way I operate that hopefully starts to cascade a little bit. So that's sort of like my own personal operating mode because I can you know definitely lead myself the best in that sense. So I try to put a structure around how I am operating that goes by those. Then we have to like address the broader organization. So all hands are always structured around this way. We start every all hands with a recap of belief, purpose, and values. That's pretty simple and easy to do. And then we frame a lot of the content in that way. And when I say frame the content, we look for things that spike in those areas or those values around the way they, around how people are using them. But I think the one that I found the most useful outside of performance reviews, obviously, is we run a weekly podcast that's 15 minutes. And on that podcast, I spend the time to talk to an engineer or manager or someone in the organization, sometimes we have guests, that exemplify one of the values or have shipped a project or shipped a piece of code that goes directly to our purpose or has enabled and shows impact in that dimension. And so that gives us a way to highlight on a regular basis the value system in a medium other than email or other than quarterly all hands or monthly all hands, but that's consistent too, right? Where we're being in like gives you a really easy way to look at this and has a nice side effect of creating a library where any new hire that starts can start from the first podcast, which is where we rolled them out or one of the places we rolled them out. And so they can listen from there up to where we are today. So they can also see the evolution of how the org has thought about this, how people have reflected upon it. And so they're not meant to be, you know, two-hour podcast or anything like that. It's like you could listen to them in the car when people were coming to work or, you know, getting ready in the morning type thing. And we find, you know, an org of 200, we probably have 30 to 50 listeners a week easily. It's hard to track. Like we don't have like a, it's a Dropbox folder. So, and we kind of just like do a poll on it, but we definitely see the adjacencies are at least two teams away or three teams away from the person that was interviewed. So that's typically if whatever the cohort of people they know, they all listen. That's one of the main mechanisms I think the other thing that's very important when you start going through this process is that you always have people that don't believe. And what we did is we made sure that we put people on the podcast within the organizations of the leaders that didn't believe on day one. And so we operationalized it from a very strategic point of view of, okay, how do we make sure we're showing true recognition and reward the people that may not be the deep believers of this so that they find value? And actually one of the biggest skeptics in the room when we went through this process is the one that holds me most accountable to them now. I probably don't go through a week without getting an email from him where he's like, I saw you did this. I don't think you lived up to this value that we have. What do you think about that? And it gave him agency, right? To like, actually, so one of my directors gave, me, gave him agency to like have that conversation with me in a way that he didn't feel, I'm guessing he didn't feel that he was empowered to have previously. That's a fascinating story. You mentioned different applications, the values, and one of those examples you named is recruiting. How do you apply those set of values to recruiting for your organization? There's two ways. There's the internal way that how we behave just towards a candidate, right? And then there's how do we reflect upon like a candidate as well? So very easy, right? For the managers inside of infrastructure, if they don't respond to candidates, if they're not on top of that, right? Like that's just like, we're asking you to be reliable. So if a candidate has a question, make sure you get back to them. Make sure you're including them. I take the point of view that you're going to hire this person. This person is going to have a one-on-one with you at some point, you know, in the next N number of weeks, right? From that point. So why are you not building that relationship before as well. It's crazy to me that hiring managers don't want to engage with the candidate pool up until the point they come in and they're a full-time employee because 
what makes that person any less special than then like having a offer letter? Like it, it makes no sense to me. So I, I take that point of view. And so I try to use the values to make sure the management team is like, you know, it's not this transactional process of recruiting. Like you have to include them. You have to make them feel like they're part of this, right? You have to actually be responsive to them. So that's on, that's the internal side. That's the part that's just about us. I would say that what we do is we use a company values more so in the hiring process. And a lot of our hiring feedback is geared around that. The tool we use actually has prompts around that, around the values. Like how did this candidate demonstrate be worthy of trust? How did this candidate, did they have a story about that? Did this candidate demonstrate an ability to make work human, right? We use the company values because we have a standard set of interview questions that are sort of more company specific that actually go towards the values of how the company operates. Then once they're inside, Typically, because they're not orthogonal values, that they tend to um, are just to be a little bit more specific of versus the company values. That tends to work out just fine. You mentioned earlier that there's a very big project related to data migration. Can you walk us through the lens of operationalized values in that project? So the project we we're talking about, we're doing a data center migration from one of our original data centers at Dropbox to another geography. And it involves tens of thousands of servers, probably over an exabyte of data to be migrated. Touches virtually every team inside of engineering. It's like the horizon is like probably north of three and a half to four years. So large capital investment as well. So as we look at that project, you know, the first cut of the project was the team had just sort of gone in isolation and said, like, we, we have a plan. <laughs> We've got a plan. Let's go do it. And, you know, at some scale, it probably would have been fine. And what we did is, you know, went through the initial design review. And when we looked at it, you know, back to the first story we were talking about, we said, do we think we can do this on this horizon? Will we be reliable? We're going to commit to finance that we're going to do this. This is actually going to happen. And everyone was kind of looking at it, like saying, like, we're going to involve a thousand people. I don't know. This is like, like that horizon that long, like we have to, it's probably not going to go. Like it wasn't going to be efficient. It wasn't going to be reliable. We didn't include the right set of people on day one. So the team went back to the drawing board and they put everything through that lens. And what they came back with was a strategy that was going to be multi-phased where the bulk of the work would be involved with just infrastructure. They would involve and make sure key stakeholders were much more informed, such as the finance team, the, well, I guess the subset of the finance team, I was going to say the, the real estate team, but all of the various teams were like part of the planning process from that point on. And they established sort of a roadmap and checkpoints of where key decisions would have to be made and what criteria would need to be made at those decision points. And so it was a very different approach from like a TPM perspective of like, okay, we have a thousand things. I'll go find a thousand people. And we'll ping them every week to make sure it happens, which is just a very different approach. And so it wasn't that there was a fundamental set of constraints that changed or anything like that. It just was the mindset of the team shifted. And all I did was send them like a quick email after the first meeting saying like, we should shift this. And so when we went through that, I mean, we're six, seven months in, I can say that the results that we've seen is we had to move, I think it was roughly around 800 petabytes of data. And we had to do it, you know, over like a six month horizon, they did it about four and a half months, the type of work I saw from the team, they were tracking the migration on a daily basis, they're sending a weekly summary out, you know, they knew exactly how many, I'm gonna say files, but they're not files, how many files had to be moved for the completion. And we're talking about billions of objects, right? We're not talking about like something that just like easily fits in a spreadsheet, you can like kind of go down. So they built software that tracks all this, right? And they were able to like actually monitor this real time and track all of this in a very different way than, you know, if you had just said like, okay, let's put this in a, you know, a checklist and have a TPM try to drive this. It became a process that was much more repeatable because we know we'll have to do this again someday. It became a process that was including, you know, everyone from finance to the customer teams who also would were sort of in the loop and at some level about like what's happening here. Just it changed the entire team's mindset of like how to approach it. Now, we had rolled the values out maybe three months before. So I don't fault the team at all for, you know, not finding a way to operationalize on the first time. But it was a good learning experience for the team to go through and see this. And what I've seen is that team, whenever they look at things now, it's always through that lens. And everything they do, it becomes a mindset more than like a set of tactics that they're doing. They took the number of people down from like a thousand to like uh, something like less than a hundred. And they were able to like get started in a way that moved the bulk of it, front loading it up front and bought everybody like months of time as well within the project. It is just a, such a different output than because they clearly weren't rowing in the same direction the first time. Everyone was like kind of rowing in their own direction, optimizing for their own thing. But by putting this optimization function effectively on it, they were able to find a much better solution. And this wasn't like we said, oh, you have half the money. This was just like, well, if you apply this lens, like what do you come back with that's different? 
Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. And this is not the first time Dropbox had done a massive data migration. <laughs> there was a project codename Magic Pocket. Can you share a little more on that and how that was executed through the lens of <laughs> values? So Magic Pocket was a, a project we did about six years ago. My, my, my memory is shaky on the timelines right now. Six years ago, maybe six and a half years ago, where we were taking the bulk of our data out of S3, probably 650 petabytes, 700 petabytes of data at the time, had to be flawless execution, giving the timelines and so the financial constraints. That one, I think everyone understood the mission. And what we learned there is, and what I took away from that is that as the project evolved, we had values that were put into place but we weren't explicit about them upfront. We were much more startup-y at the time. I think engineering was maybe 250 people. So like it was, you know, you had this collective wisdom that was there. And, you know, for that project, what came out of it is like durability is paramount. Trustworthiness is paramount. You cannot lose a single byte of data or a single bit of data. And so the systems were built that way. And the team's ethos became that. And they still have that to the day. Like I would say, if you had reliability and going down a level, if you go into the storage teams, durability is their value. Right, like, and I would say that's like how they operate personally, how they operate from a from a systems perspective. Durability was a value that came out of that, and what they did was build fantastic validation systems to make sure that everything could be found. There's a, I think there's a talk online about this at some point. We did a, we had these SRE teams at reliability. One of the things they were challenged with, if you corrupt one single bit of data in this like transfer, can you detect it in less than a one-week period? And so without ever using the code base that's migrating the data. So build your own code base that can independently validate all of this. And so they built these like credible frameworks around validation for this. All of that still exists today. And I think that that's actually, you know, they have that value system now. So anytime they have any, if they think anything ever goes wrong in the storage systems, it's like all hands on deck and there's no questions. Like the teams don't like, there's no finger pointing, there's no blame. It's just so entrenched in the value system that they have that you must be reliable about durability. You can't lose data. You have to have a mindset that this is the most important thing that we have. Systems at record, systems at rest can't ever have a, have a bite of data or a bit of data in any sort of endangered mode. So I think what we learned there is that you know, as you go through that process, we learned that values are very important, but we didn't think about them on day one and say like, this is how we're going to operate ourselves. What we learned is like, as we built this thing, we have to have these. And so those have been now baked into the system as the teams evolved. I would definitely, if we started to bootstrap it from today, I would definitely do it differently because I think it took time for the team to realize that. It took time for the team to converge on sort of how, how to think about it. Definitely caused friction because, you know, you had different people thinking about is one bit of data the most important or like, or is getting off because the dollar value is more important? I mean, that trade-off becomes hard then because there wasn't an aligned on set of principles. And then it becomes very much, you know, at the time, VP of engineering has to make that call versus the team understanding, okay, yeah, no, data is more important than cost on this. We need to flag it, but like we should do the right, like if we continue down this path, it's okay. If you have a six-year project, you probably have people that then leave but then the values and the principles that guide that decision-making have to persist to continue the reliability and the durability of the project. Do you have any insights about how you can help values outlast the people? I think the most important thing there is making sure that as you hire and as you bring in new talent to the teams, that the previous generation that's moving on or going on to new projects spends the time to teach and educate on that and that you're explicit about the decision-making process. I think way too often we're much more implicit about how things work. I see this in mentorship. I'd say like it's the difference between active mentorship versus like passive mentorship. Just making sure the why is understood, which is why, you know, from my directs, having like monthly business reviews where they are explicitly framing things around values is important. So design reviews, similarly, if you're a senior engineer, using them to talk through why you made this decision and being explicit about the verbiage, right? You have a vernacular, so use that vernacular because 
because that actually helps people discuss it. And right as they talk about it, that's the only way I find that they internalize it. Like just reading a paper or a internal we have a tool called paper in reading a paper document or reading a wiki, you have to live and breathe it, right? You have to get indoctrinated into it. So I think it's a big part of it is like, you can't let the team go to zero and then try to reboot it, right? Like if you want the value system to persist, you have to transition it and then you have to be willing to see it evolve. I think that's the other, the biggest part. The reason this is struggling a little bit to answer this question is that the leadership, like the senior leadership in infrastructure at Dropbox has been fairly stable over eight years. There's basically been three senior leaders in infrastructure and myself being one of them. The other two have moved on to different roles inside of Dropbox. So there's been a continuity of values there. So that's why I'm a little bit struggling because I probably say that I was the one that persisted that, but I think the leadership team now actually has that. And like, I spend very little time on worrying about reliability or durability of systems. I think they just, they get it and they spend their time there. I mean, I think even just diving into being explicit with how decisions are made and thinking through some of the other examples that you've shared where that exists, like in terms of being able to replicate that decision-making process or to, you know, make that discipline throughout the whole organization, I think is really powerful. Are there other other inputs to help make decision-making process explicit within the, the operations and things that you do? I think that the biggest is creating an environment where Somebody doesn't know. That's like my general assumption is like somebody doesn't understand like why that occurred and like making it safe for somebody to ask that question. Because if I think about sort of the turnover rate and the higher rates and at least Silicon Valley, like there's always somewhat new in the room, right? Like it's never the same set of people that were there last week, even in some sense. So like when I say they don't know, they genuinely don't know because they weren't here for the like the last three discussions. So making sure you take the time to go through that walk through the thought process, even if it means spending extra time offline with them, you have to do it. Otherwise, like it takes too long to ramp up in a lot of the technology stacks that exist today or a lot of the companies that exist. The two of you probably are familiar with this, but like if the average tenure is like somewhere around two, two and a half years, like that is not a lot of time to like pick up a value system, ship some code and like understand what you're doing. So I, I think a lot of it is like, I want to have a mindset that there's a long-term horizon of people staying because these systems are, have to be durable. So then how do you create environments that incentivize that? How do you create environments where like you want to invest in people and they want to stay here for the long-term because they're seeing the value in that. They're understanding why something is happening more so than just like, yeah, yeah, I shipped that thing and I got my bonus and I'm out of here now. That's not the culture. Like I want a culture that's like much more about, okay, I understood what's happening here. And this is about me growing as an engineer or as a person like through the organization. Total meta comment, Andrew. I'm having so much fun diving into this. Like, I just think seeing all of the different ways that you've been able to engineer and apply how values impact behavior, at, even at such a granular level, but then also at, at some of the big decisions and big projects is, is really powerful because I think you can have these big values. But what does that look like every day? How does that actually impact your decisions and behavior? And that's the big challenge. No, no, I totally agree. I mean, literally my, my next to do is to talk to talk to my chief of staff about like, okay, what's the podcast for this week? What are we shipping? What's the email I'm going to go send? That's literally my next, uh, the next thing I'm doing. I have to figure it off with you guys. Repetition is the key. Yeah, it's repetition. You have to repeat it. I don't think there's any secret. I, I, I truly don't think there's any secret sauce to this. I think it's about the discipline to be repetitive on it. And I actually think the word repetition is a bad word in some sense for it, right? It's like, I think when I used to hear that, you know, when I was a more junior manager and people would say like, oh, just keep repeating yourself, right? It's like, there's this undertone of like, why am I repeating myself? But I, 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 don't, I think that's the wrong mindset to have around it. I tend to think of it as like, my mindset should be these things. And so it's not repeating myself. I'm just living the set of things that I believe. And so it's not that I'm repeating it because I want other people to believe it. It's like, I believe this. So therefore I'm following the set of things and I'm just being explicit. I'm not repeating myself. I'm just making my thought process explicit. Yeah, that's a very useful perspective to have. So you talk about the value and how it applies in a larger, like 200 people organization. Do you have examples where it applies to a smaller team? So I had the great opportunity to, and I know this is a challenge for a lot of organizations right now, which is development environments. I spent nine months, it was my only foray outside of infrastructure Dropbox, spent nine months in the platform organization helping fix up some of the development environments. And we had built this environment called EC, Enchanted Container, that simply wasn't scaling. The best way to put it is that Engineering managers had interns in their offices being like, oh my God, I can't get my job done. <laughs> like, I can't, can't, like, am, am I going to get a return off or am I going to get an 
offer, like I can't ship my code because this, this development environment just is like blocking me. Engineers would be like, we're not going to update our environment because if we update it, we don't know if it's going to work next week. I mean, this, this is probably four years ago, three and a half years ago. And it was just not great. And I've definitely heard horror stories from other places. It's similar, you know, you grow really fast. You don't think about like the tooling and the tool chains you need to actually become, you know, productive, efficient, and effective through the organization. And so I moved over from infrastructure and I started working with this team. It was about probably 17 to 22 people, somewhere around that size at the time. And I had the luxury of actually working with like an engineer that's just absolutely phenomenal. And he and I sat down and said like, okay, what are the things we need to change? Well, we need to build some behaviors in the system that where the team, which was a little more junior, understood where to go directionally, as well as we got an output that gave like senior engineering agency to say like, no, where it wasn't like a philosophical sort of holy war type debate, but it became like, no, there's some principles and like you'll adhere to these principles. And so it wasn't as crisp as the infrastructure sort of way of thinking, but we did come up with a mission statement, it's a little more wordy, that was just more around engineering is fundamentally a creative task and our job is to remove the friction between your brain and the keyboard as much as possible. Effectively, I think that was pretty close to what it was, it was three years ago. And then we came up with some engineering principles. And there's sort of the values, like we want things to be modular, we want things to be composable, we want things to be reliable, we want things to operate on the principle of least surprise. And so that was the lens because this was a much more technical problem at the time. And it wasn't about building a durable organization. It was literally about like, can we solve this problem? So we used the similar process. Like we went through this with the whole team, all 17 people, like, and we came up with this, this framework and we used that to basically rebuild the development environment for all of Dropbox at the time, probably 600 to 800 people we had to ship it to. We built a new development environment that allowed people to get onboarded within 30 minutes, write code within 45, was basically unimpeachable from like, it would not break because the development environment would also be validated through CI. Like it was basically impossible for, if the code shipped to production, the development environment therefore must work. Like it was impossible for one not to be true. And so built that, shipped it out to all of engineering in like less than nine months. The team had been working or like we'd been hacking at it on, you know, for probably better half of two years before that in sort of an iterative way. Um, we just did a forklift upgrade in like less than nine months to get it out the door. Like from idea to fully all not like MVP, but like fully shipped, everyone moved and migrated onto it, which was a pretty big deal at the time. Took sort of the perception of engineering from like, you know, very low in terms of like how well people could get a job done, like almost tripled the score, I think at the time, instead of the surveys we ran. Sort of sim principles, like we just use it every week in a design review. We always go through the principles. We'd always talk about it in that way. We were just like, always look. I think there was a tagline at the time that we would basically put on everything. I think we changed the team's mindset to be like, your dev is our prod. Because like, I think there was mindset that, okay, development environments are development environments. Who cares if they break? Like, I think it's fairly true from what I've seen across Silicon Valley. Like, I think it's like, you know, it's a bunch of, you know, people all hacking on at the same time, but coming from infrastructure, I wanted them to take the mindset that like, you're shipping a product. This thing has to work. If you have, a, say, a thousand engineers and you have a 1% error rate, that's a lot of emails a day, right? That's a full-time person's job to respond to those emails. So like, if you want this to be scalable, right? And you want this to operate well, you have to like, in our principles, like sort of outlined all of this, you have to get down to like, you know, three, four nines of reliability on like the development environment, which if you put that constraint in, shifts how people think about doing development, building the environment itself. So that's like on a smaller scale, sort of a project. I think the total size of the project, the number of people that worked on it was probably like north of 25, around 25, but it was also a distributed team. It wasn't all one organization. So we had people that joined from other places that had similar, that we had to indoctrinate sort of on the, on the engineering principles around it. Yeah, the part I found really impressive is that it's not, so this team they put together temporarily for this project. And also you start by first identifying the principles of values and use that to guide a lot of decision making along the way. I guess that itself has still a lot of time in terms of making the tough decisions. <laughs> yes. Have, you know, trigger a lot of conversations. I, I will say it also, I mean, the, the side effect, right, is like people self-select out, right? It becomes very, I mean, to get a little spicy, right? Like it becomes pretty easy for people that don't adhere to that to say like, look, this is not the organization I want to be in. And it's not bad, right? Like it's not like, okay, your performance problem, right? It's just like, I don't, this value system doesn't work for me it's like, okay, let's have that discussion. That's a personal judgment, right? That's not an efficacy of like how good are you at your job. It's just a question about like, do you adhere, do you, do you believe in this? If not, it's okay, right? Like you should work on something you believe in. You should come into work every day believing 
truly believing the thing you're going to do is like going to be maximally impactful. If it's not, then we should have that discussion. Yeah. And this is, I think, can be generalized by this is probably one approach you can take towards any large or medium sized or even small sized projects. Yep. yep. Uh, either explicitly or implicitly. Yep. So that's for running an organization, use values and principles. How does those reflect it in your personal girls? Do you have a habit of doing that outside of work as well? Or uh, what kind of routines or uh, things you do? I have a very similar structure. So like work and personal is like, I use the same framework in like a lot of ways in, in the same way. I think that my work personal North Star is probably similar to my personal lifeline. Like it's about maximizing people's ability to get the thing they want to do done. That's sort of the idea behind everything. So I try to like, it's similar framework. I definitely maintain personal OKRs. I definitely have a framework for them where it's personal growth, family, like those are like the themes, right? My wife and I had a discussion around values the other day because we have a toddler and we were talking like, okay, how do we want to raise our son? Like, what's the value system we want him to have? It's been implicit between the two of us, right? She's a big believer in like growth. She's like, okay, I want a kid with a growth mindset, right? I want that to be like a value that's there. So we definitely had that conversation in a car ride out to her parents' house before COVID. We need to be a little more explicit, but he's only... 21 months. So I don't think he understands right now. <laughs> so we have a little bit of time to like roll out one. But yeah, no, I, I definitely have that same sort of mindset in my personal life. I'm a big, I, I'm a pretty disciplined person from that, that perspective, both personally and professionally tends to be sort of, I won't say, I'll say rigid, but not inflexible. And in sort of my processes and like what I do. Yeah. And do you see like the application in personal life and at work reinforcing each other? I definitely see they reinforce each other. I mean, just things I do habitually, just for my person, for myself, like probably the three things, I have a huge belief in meditation and journaling. So I do both of those. This is the third one I'll throw you guys for a little bit of a loop. My personal sort of sport of choice is powerlifting. If you know anything about the sport of powerlifting, the theory is you can always sort of like get stronger in some way. So there's a gross mindset sort of like, like it fit naturally for me in that sense. And there was like a, process in which you follow to get better at this thing. Um, so it felt very natural from like the engineering side of me. So like those are the three sort of outlets I have, which I know it's like journaling, powerlifting, and, uh, and meditation. It's like not the three things I thought you'd probably heard from me, but it's sort of like what I do to like maintain that structure. Those are really the three pillars, sort of my personal side. The manifestation of your personal values. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely, yep. Do you have a question that you ask yourself to realign, like if your behavior is out of integrity with your values, like do you have a question or a process in how you realign within your values? Journaling kind of gets at that. Like to the reflection there, I'm also lucky enough to have like a fantastic coach who like holds me pretty accountable to a lot of this stuff. So like that's probably the two mechanisms. I think you have to be brutally honest with yourself. You're always going to tell a story or always have some lens, right? I think the other is... I definitely want a team around me that's willing to call me on it. And I think it's like super important to have peers that will do that as well. I have, you know, a former manager who will do this on a regular basis. Like I can like ping him at any time and be like, Hey, can I talk to you? He'll spend two hours talking through something and like not let me kind of get away with anything. I have two also good friends and peers, one of which I've known for probably almost 20 years now, 18 years, work together in a couple of places. And he's, he definitely will hold me to that and be like, no, 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 no. Like, no, this is not, you know, I don't know what you're doing here. Like, you got to think about that differently. So that's sort of like how I do it. Cause I think it's very hard to always be super self-reflective on it because everyone has their own self-perception and their own story they're telling themselves and getting those external perspectives, right. And making sure that they're not going to be people that's like reinforce your perspective. Like, I think, that's very important. It's really easy. And I see this a lot to find an echo chamber. I think that's the part that is like very important to me is like just making sure that echo chamber doesn't exist. I think the the mechanisms that you highlighted to realign you with your personal values, like I think what's so special is like when you talk about the peers or you talk about your coach and the people you surround yourself with, like that's such a powerful I, I, should, I should also not, not be remiss. So my wife also does. Um, yeah. <laughs> she definitely gives me, she definitely will call me out on it. Um, she called me out this morning on something. Um, so I would oh. say like, that's probably the, the support structure. I mean, especially if you're having explicit conversations about the values and system in which you want to raise your children. Like that's a really special conversation to, to have too. But just how powerful those mechanisms are to surround yourself with those types of people who want the best for you and mm -hmm. you living in integrity with your values, being the best expression of who you are. Andrew, we're getting close on our time. We wanted to end with one more question for you. 
was wondering if you could leave us with a story of a difficult moment or a decision that you had to make where having operationalized values really helped you navigate that situation and made a big difference in the the outcome. And this can be within Dropbox or another organization or other involvements or personally, um, but would love to hear like when the stakes are high, how did those decisions really lead to a big impact? Those are always hard questions. Probably the biggest ones for me are like, anytime it's like a feedback conversation, right? It's like really easy to like go into the realm of like, okay, what's the easiest thing for me to do to feel safe in this? So this other person also doesn't feel like this is an awkward conversation. And I think that I, I, I tend to go straight to values in that, in those conversations, like from my own head about, okay, if I don't express this to this person and I'm not giving them like what they need to hear, I'm not being like, I'm failing them in some way, right? Probably personal value is a big part is around like integrity. And so like having that like conversation internally, it's like, if I'm not actually having this conversation with this person, like, am I holding that value to be true? That one's like, the one that goes through my head like consistently, because I think it's very easy to explain it away. And then you just don't have that hard conversation you have to have. I can think of a couple hard conversations, like they're all like sort of people thing, people related things recently. So I don't want to go into too much detail with them, but like, those are definitely the ones where I sit there and I'm like, okay, I have to have this conversation. It's going to be hard, but like, otherwise I just, I'm not living the values that like we want to have. It's really cool to be able to look into the mental conversation that you're having with yourself in that moment. Because I, <laughs> it's, yeah. <laughs> it's always a fun conversation internally. It's like, okay, what's the easiest thing to do? Well, it's definitely not this. <laughs> but, is the right, but is it the right thing to do? Actually, the, the better story for this is I, I have a good friend and I've known her for like my whole life. And she said when, we were like probably 14 or 15 years old. She made a comment that, you know, she's a doctor at Stanford now that you have a duty if you have a set of skills, like you have to use them and maximize them to the fullest extent. And like, I remember it was like the conversation centered around duty. And I, that tends to be the way I think about it. If I'm in this job and I'm in this role or I'm doing these set of things, you have this duty to do that. And I think that's probably the way I get through it. Integrity was probably the wrong word. Duty is the word that comes to my mind. Now I reflect a little bit on it. Andrew, Thank you so much. This has just been an incredible conversation about values, about decision-making, and about ultimately living the best expression of who you are. I try, but it's, it's definitely <laughs> hard. <laughs> Here's a quick summary of Andrew Fong's insights to identify, operationalize, and reinforce values in your organization. Identifying your values is ultimately about defining the behavior you want to see. To start, Gather a representative group of your team or org, and there's lots of permutations for how this could look for you. Then progress through a series of discussions focused on belief, purpose, and values. To get to the root of your belief, ask, what would we believe to be true about X, regardless of where we worked or industry that we're in? X can be your industry, it can be your vertical, it can be your org category. Andrew's org defined their belief as infrastructure is a force multiplier. To determine your purpose, ask, why do we exist? Here, you want to keep it simple. For Andrew's team, their purpose is to maximize product velocity sustainably. And with values, there are a couple different prompts for your discussion. Ask, what do we value? Why did we join? What's the cohesive reason that brings everyone together? And what behaviors do we want to incentivize within our team or our org? Linking values to ideal behavior is what creates the environments for your teams to take values-aligned action and make values-aligned decisions consistently. Andrew's infrastructure team defined their values as reliable, efficient, and inclusive, and these now shape all of their decisions at a macro and micro level. Okay, so you've identified your values. Here's how to operationalize and reinforce those values. Values impact everything even if they're still implicit and haven't been named yet. To operationalize your values, they need to be explicit. Andrew's mindset is they need to be everywhere, all the time. He applies them to OKRs, headcount planning, monthly business reviews, metrics reviews, everything. Here are a few strategies you can use to operationalize your values. Decision-making. Any key decision made has a section explicitly focused on how did we arrive at this conclusion? How is this decision framed around our mission and our values? 
Behavior modeling. Another key input is to model the behavior. Integrate the values into your personal operating mode. Consistent messaging. Reinforce the belief, purpose, and values in your all-hands meetings, your one-on-ones, your performance reviews, and in all of those settings, look for the spikes where people are using those values, and then frame your messages and content around those specific behaviors. An example of this, this is an absolutely epic example, Andrew and Dropbox celebrate and reinforce values through a weekly podcast where they interview team members who exemplify their values. Operationalizing means you actively use your values as a filter to define your projects and make decisions. Andrew shared how their values made a massive difference on their approach in his data center migration story. And in taking a few lessons learned from Dropbox's Magic Pocket project, be explicit with your values up front. This reduces friction, it saves time, and it leads to clearer decisions, especially when you have to make trade-offs. To wrap up, here are a couple tips to help values endure. Be strategic with any non-believers from the beginning. Recognize and reward them so that they find value. And if you want values to endure beyond people, be explicit with how decisions are made and take the time to teach and educate your decision-making process. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.